Hi, it's Fraser here. And before we get into this week's episode, where we dig down into last week's seismic general election, I'd like to thank everyone who has supported Spike this year. You might have bought something from our online shop, you might have given us a one-off or monthly donation, or you might have recommended Spike to friends and shared our articles online. All of you have played a part in helping Spike to reach new heights and get our pro-democracy, pro-freedom message out there to new people. So thank you from me and the team. Of course, Spiked is not done yet. We'll also need your help to take the fight into 2020. Donations are the best way to support us directly. One-off donations are brilliant and regular donations are even better. Why not become a regular Spiked supporter this Christmas by clicking on the big red donate button on the top right of the homepage? Anything you can give would be hugely appreciated and could make all the difference in the year ahead. So thanks in advance for any help. And now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week we have Spiked's Deputy Editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up we'll be discussing the latest fallout from the general election. I think it was Brexit that did us. We were in this Hornsby dilemma, we couldn't move either way. What is the point of the Labour Party if we don't respect and represent those voices? My government's priority is to deliver the United Kingdom's departure from the European Union. A new golden age for this United Kingdom is now... So the dust is starting to settle on perhaps the most significant general election in a generation... The huge victory for Boris Johnson means that Brexit will now happen on his terms and to his timetable. The parliamentary deadlock that defines so much of this year has been cleared and so many of the Brexit blockers have been brutally swept aside. Tom, let's start with what your main takeaway is from the past week. Well, I know it's not a um, unique point at this point, but I guess it was just the scale of the defeat for Labour amongst what should be their traditional base, you know, working class people in particular. We talked a little bit last week about the particular seats that swung to the Tories and how many of them, you know, historically had been died in the wall Labour seats and how symbolic that was. But what's been interesting is as the analysis has started to come out, as the various surveys have begun to be published, you really start to see the kind of scale of the potential realignment of British politics that we're seeing. Mm. So in YouGov survey, they found that the Tories were leading amongst C2DE over Labour. So in C2, Tories took 49% of the vote, Labour 31%. In DE, the Tories took 47%, Labour took 34%. And what's interesting is even though there's been a lot of quibbling about the um, categories for social class, the NRS social grades in particular, as Paula Surridge, um, a pollster, pointed out, that um, also if you dig into the YouGov numbers, you saw that the Tories won in households earning under 20,000 pounds you know yeah. this is something which doesn't matter what way you try to splice it as many people have been trying to splice it various different ways in the wake of this vote this is a really historic defeat and it's quite clear that where the Tories dynamism were in this race were from those working class voters and those working class constituencies deciding to take a chance on them some of the biggest swings of the night were in places that have been Labour for time immemorial. Bassett Law was one of them. It's been Labour since 1935, basically ever since Labour has been a proper national political force. It had an 18% swing to the Tories. Saw similar things in in Great Grimsby, around a 15% swing, and that was under the Sunday Times analysis. And then again, you look at the the one place where they gained, and it's Putney. Yeah. So the importance of this I think can't be brushed over but it has been really striking that whilst there has been some begrudging acceptance of this fact that um, Labour can no longer really claim to be the party of the 
working class. There is still this attempt at denialism. There is still this attempt to suggest that because of their support from young voters, they're still mm-hmm. representing um, the deprived people of Britain. That simple fact cannot be ignored. And it calls into question not just Labour's ability to um, get close to power again, but the point of why they're supposed to be in politics in the first place, which is to represent those kinds of people. That just seems so shot at this point. I'm going to add one more piece of analysis that proves this, which is the <laughs> Financial Times analysis, which showed that these seats that we've been talking about, the red wall seats, as much as Corbynistas might try and claim that this is the old working mm. class, actually, these are the seats with the highest proportion of skilled and unskilled manual workers in, in the country. So there's simply no way of, of evading this. And, you know, as you alluded to, they try and um, say that the real battleground is is generations you know young people are asset poor older people asset rich they often point to education being a mm-hmm. factor you know people with basically lower educational qualifications um, are more likely to vote tory and they say well actually that's an indicator of age and not class i mean there's some truth in that but class obviously plays a role it seems very odd for you know left wing people in particular to not notice there is a kind of structural gap in between working class people and middle class people in terms of the level of education there. But, you know, at every turn, it seems to be denial that this is an issue for them. And it's remarkable because it's so obvious. I mean, I don't think any of us in this room predicted the landslide that the Tories Mm. eventually gained, but I certainly didn't think Labour was going to do well out of it, simply because for the last year or so, or and longer, they've been talking about the working class and describing them as poor, disaffected, uh, on the breadline or, you know, pathetic kind of in these really patronizing terms, but they've never actually (laughs) spoken to and they certainly don't speak for these people simply because they've rejected Brexit. And it was quite funny watching the interviews just after the exit poll had come out. John McDonald was interviewed with his kind of a, a hangdog expression and he said, well, you know, I think We've all come to terms with the fact that this is about Brexit. And you think, no shit, Sherlock. I mean, where have you been for the last three and a half years? It's obvious that the one thing vast numbers of working class voters in this country wanted, which was Brexit, was denied by the Labour Party. So obviously they're not going to turn to you. I mean, the difficult thing about this is that there have been some conflicting analyses on what the reason was for the turn against Labour. Interestingly, like the Ashcroft polls, one of the questions asked was, you know, what was your main driving force for voting in this? And the first one was whether or not you trusted the motives of the leaders. The second Mm. one was who was going to do a better job of the economy. And the third one was Brexit. Now, obviously, with conservative voters, Brexit was much more of a priority. But there was also things at play, like the fact that not only was Corbyn not deemed trustworthy or slightly suspect because of the anti-Semitism issue, but also because of this sitting on the fence with the Brexit deal, also because of the fact that Johnson had a very clear message. All these things were at play, but the scrabbling around for who to blame among some Labour supporters, whether it's the media mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, biased reporting or dog whistle tactics or any of yeah. this nonsense, it's just avoiding the B word. I thought it was really interesting as well how identity politics, I guess, factored into the class denialism, as you saw it with the reaction from certain Corbynistas in particular to the results. There was one 
pro- quite prominent Corbynista who shall remain nameless, who suggested that can we, you know, we can talk about this result, but can we not play into the dog whistle heartlands narrative, which mm. as we all know is deeply racialized? And there is this been this sort of tendency over recent months and years for the Corbynistas, particularly in the wake of the 2017 result, because it's easy to forget that that was the first election in living memory at which class ceased to be a kind of indicator as to how you would vote, you know, and, and it's important to remember that this is a kind of slower progression um, that nevertheless really kind of started to crest in 2017. But there's been this tendency to suggest, look, of course, you know, ethnic minority people in cities, they're working class too. And of course, no one disputes that yeah. whatsoever. But it seems like they almost feel that if they can focus on one section of the working class that does still support them, then that means you can completely discount all the others who have obviously moved away from you entirely. You know, this tendency to try and talk about young media professionals as part of the working class and also often highly represented amongst um, Corbynista media outriders. It's just so obvious at this point that this is at best a tactic but also, on the other hand, a kind of indicator as to why they lost these people in the first place. Because not only are they just kind of making up excuses, but they, for a long time, because of the influence of identity politics and that kind of kind of grievance politics over their thinking, and because of all of the narratives that that involves, the idea that there are all these kind of thick racist people out there and all the rest of it, it has made them just almost not care about class politics, really. They don't, yeah. they pretend that they do, but really they don't. And of course, the other faction who are trying to take advantage of this are, are the Blairites, and they have their ready-made explanation of why Corbyn failed, and it's because, you know, he's not centrist enough. What do you make of that kind of narrative? Well, it doesn't really hold that much weight because there hasn't been a huge amount of difference between the manifesto this time around and the one in 2017. They've kind of stepped it up slightly with the messaging and the, you know, slightly more comprehensive announcements about what they were going to nationalise and throwing money here or there. But in general, everyone knows what Corbyn's about. Everyone knows what McDonald's about. Everyone knows about Corbynomics pretty well by now. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that that is what turned off voters and that you you need to be sort of more fiscally responsible or Mm -hmm. less momentum-y. I mean, these forces have been within the Labour Party for a long time now. The difference was... In 2017, they did not have the Brexit policy they had this time around. And I mean, the thing that I think was something to watch during the election campaign was this characterization, both of Corbyn and his team as, you know, insurgent Marxists who were going to revolutionize British, the British economy, which wasn't true, but also the kind of fear mongering around any kind of sense of economic change, the the terror that people have of a hard left and a hard right, hmm. got all these kind of t- young Tory commentators going on in the most kind of alarmist language hmm. about the prospect of a socialist Britain And I really think that most voters were more sensible than that and saw through that and, you know, let the the commentators who are trying to attention seek about these things get on with it. And actually they had more serious reasons for rejecting Labour rather than buying into the whole nonsense of the, you know, reds under the bed scare that was essentially around Labour Party. I think I think that's really true. But what's interesting is that of course, you know, in an election, you're gonna ha- you're gonna get dirt thrown at you, and you're gonna throw dirt back. Yeah. So it's obvious that the Tories would try and characterise Corbyn and Corbynomics in this way. But I think what was most telling was the way so many Corbyn outriders embraced 
this position mm. that we're radicals, we're Marxists. You know, Ash Sarkar famously saying, I'm literally a communist yeah. when, you know, we, we all know that actually she wants to remain in the EU and is quite mm. happy with, um, you know, the way the economy is run at the moment and on those terms. Mm. So they, you know, they played a role in encouraging that and, and they, they shouldn't now turn and blame the media if they feel that, you know, this was off putting to voters. No, completely. And I think it's important as well because there's kind of two competing explanations, isn't there? One of which is that it's all about Corbyn, which mm. can allow the more pro remain more passionately pro-remain sections of the Labour Party to claim they had nothing to do whatsoever with the Brexit position. And then, of course, you've now got these Corbynistas who've come round to the idea that actually, you know, trying to overturn a democratic vote, which was one of the, which is, you know, the biggest mandate in our history, um, is actually now a bad idea. And they finally realise that, you know, so there's these two competing things, but obviously they're wrapped up together. You know, there was yeah. some um, research from Opinium who found that amongst um, people who defected from Labour to the Tories, who I think are the ones we're sort of most interested in and all seem to be so quite decisive at this election, 45% of them, it was the leadership that made them make that decision. 31% was the policy on Brexit. And those two things are largely intertwined, I think, on mm. one level. Uh, interestingly, only about 6% said it was the economic policy. So again, yeah. it does lend some credence to that point, which it isn't necessarily about the substance of them. It's more about the leadership and the broader author. And I think what that does say is that those two things were bound up together because Jeremy Corbyn, not only because of his unseemly associations and, you know, his approach to anti-Semitism, which I think did cut through in a way that it really hadn't beforehand, which I think is a, was a positive thing insofar as that is a, was a really crucial issue. The two things are very much bound up because he did stand at 2017 saying he would implement this result and he didn't. And he, you know, was slowly captured by the more Remainer forces in his party. He gave in to them. And of course, that seemed to have some bearing on the result. Just quickly on the, you know, on the economic stuff, I think also voters will have noticed what the Tories were offering. Um, you know, this was a two horse race and the Conservatives offered a pretty much deficit busting package of public spending. And, you know, I think people realized that there maybe wasn't a huge difference in the amount that Boris Johnson was promising to spend on the NHS and Labour was promising to spend on the NHS, even though Labour told us that, you know, the NHS was going to be over if, um, mm. if, if they lost. So I'm amazed we haven't sold it to Trump yet. When is that going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> might have be, might be happening as we record mm. this. So, you know, going forward, the Labour leadership seems to be kind of kicking off in earnest. Um, Emily Thornbury has officially thrown her hat in the ring. Um, God. At the t- <laughs> yeah, the right reaction. Um, Sakir Starmer, Yvette Cooper, Lisa Nandy have all said they're considering it. I mean, this doesn't look good for them, does it? There aren't many great contenders for this. Yeah, Yvette Cooper, who has had a go and previously lost the leadership election already, so she'll at least know how it goes. I mean, the interesting thing about this leadership election, there's two things. First of all, is that it's almost a given that it has to be a woman. And even very anti-Labour commentators have been sort of coming out and saying, you know, the Tories have now had two female prime ministers, Labour Party has to step it up. And if they were to learn anything from the last election, and actually I think Brendan O'Neill has made this point elsewhere, is that voters in, as we've been talking about, working class areas have just elected a big eaten bombastic oaf who looks and sounds nothing like them and so the idea that identity or representing a certain group in society matters has thankfully been proved wrong in this election and you know even the fact that 
as it happens, the Ashcroft poll shows that women weren't particularly swayed towards um, Labour, even though Labour has a much more identity politics, pro-women, 50-50 representation, mm. whole sections in his manifestos based on things aimed specifically at women. That didn't work. So, you know, why does it have to be a woman? It does not have to be a woman. Presumably it has to be, if they're going to learn anything, it has to be someone who's pro-Brexit. And the second thing is what's interesting around the the, we've talked a bit about the Blairite side and then there's the kind of the momentum Corbyn side who simply believe that they just need to get a reincarnation of Corbyn in there, you know, whether that be uh, Rebecca Long-Bailey or, you know, someone like Lisa Nandy, who's sympathetic, has a bit of an accent, is going to be able to chime in with those people they've lost in the North. The thing they're obsessed with at the moment is messaging and comms. And it's Mm. like this kind of, it's the extremes of the workings of a party machine where they think all they need to do, they've got the right politics, they've got the right message, but all they need to do is just somehow hoodwink voters into getting that. And that will be in the form of this new, very message prepped new leader. That again is nonsense. Yeah. I mean, the part of the denialism um, that we were alluding to earlier is, is in that, you know, we were right. We won mm. the argument, as as uh, Jeremy Corbyn said. But Tom, all of the people who are lining themselves up at the moment. So, as you say, as, at the time of recording, Emily Thornberry is the only one who's actually properly declared. Um, but you've also got, you know, Sakir Starmer. You have um, Rebecca Long Bailey, as we talked about. Angela Rayner. There's talk of those two kind of standing on a ticket. So mm. where Angela Rayner would be her deputy. And there's obviously a lot of discussion at the moment about who members might go for, given the fact that members are seen as very friendly to Corbyn. I've always tended to think that, or at least my hunch was that um, whilst Labour members do want something that looks quite radical and they are kind of ideological in that sense, you could easily see a situation in which someone like a Keir Starmer could, as he has been doing in his pitch so far, such as it is, try to say this isn't about a lurch to the right, it's about just kind of repackaging the politics as it mm. currently is. So I, don't, I always thought that they wouldn't necessarily end up with another kind of ideologue, if we want to call it that. But what's just so striking about all of them is that none of them really set the pulse racing apart from in the wrong way, like Emily <laughs> Thornberry. You know, they're just, they're, there's something about this leadership discussion as it is currently, which is either, you know, carry on as usual in relation to Corbynism or revert back to some version of more centrist Brownite or Blairite politics, which just seems so utterly delusional. It doesn't seem to have got to grips with the scale of the defeat. Mm. It doesn't seem to have got to grips with the fact that um, even though many of them are proceeding on the basis, well, Brexit is kind of a done issue now. You know, even Tony Blair has kind of admitted defeat this week on the question of we are leaving the European Union. There's this kind of assumption that, oh, now that's out of the way. We can just kind of sneak back in there because, you know, these people are Labour really. And I think that's really um, misjudges the electorate in the sense that, first of all, people don't forget a betrayal that quickly. You know, mm. you know, this party has become the primary means through which Brexit was um, slowed down, almost overturned via a second referendum. People aren't going to forget that. But also just the the broader, more historic shift that all of this represents. And just coming back to the, the Blairites for one second, I thought it was interesting that there, again, there's this kind of attempt to kind of just blame all of this on Corbyn. But in relation to the working classes in particular, their base moving away from them, this has been happening from before Tony Blair, but certainly under Tony Blair in particular. You know, mm. Bishop Auckland is an interesting example. In 1997, its majority was 20 21,000 and it slowly went down the years that Blair was in power to the point where at 2017 it was just 500 you know and this is a point that John Curtis has made is the fact that in many respects Corbynism finished what Blairism started in terms of moving the party towards the middle class this is a political break with these people
people. Um, it is this move towards a paternalism that both sides of the party share. But it's also a kind of deeper kind of cultural break as well. These people just don't feel like they represent them anymore. And I think, again, just moving in someone who is a more, you know, PR friendly version of what they've had before or moving back to um, the older politics just doesn't seem to be them reckoning with with the depth and the scale of this defeat at this point. I I think what seems to have happened is that, you know, they've become over the years, obviously reliant on what we've, what we're now calling the red wall towns, you know, those old labor safe seats. And because those seats were safe, those voters kind of be neglected. And then they could kind of, um, fashion their appeal better and better towards the kind of middle class voters who maybe wouldn't have backed them in the, in the 1980s, but you know, that they won over under the Blair coalition. But they seem to now have completely lost touch and have no idea how to go back to the old voters. You know, they, they've, they've really lost that footing in a sense. They're also also just sort of blinded to the fact that they have been insulting people for a very long time. And Clive Lewis tweeted this ridiculous, this Turkish proverb that's being retweeted. I don't know if anyone's mm. seen it about the axe and, you know, the, the woods kept voting for the axe, essentially saying uh, people were tricked into voting for the Tories because the Tories said they were on their side. And actually the working class couldn't see that really the Tories are just out to to destroy them Mm. and it's that kind of it's it's that paternalism and that patronizing attitude of we know what's good for you that you don't even know yourself so sure you voted for brexit but we know that it's going Mm. to be bad for you and you lose your job you know sure you you have problems with immigration but we know that actually what you're really doing is expressing a kind of innate racism and all that all that talking down to people isn't just going to be reversed with oh brexit's over and done with and so now you come back Mm. into the fold that is the damage as tom said that's been been chipping away we kind of forget about the impact of the Labour Party's external to Brexit extreme focus on identity politics whether it be to do with trans rights or women or racism all of that has been pissing people off for years and that's they've paid for it now in this election. Caroline Flint made an interesting allegation. Mm. Tom, I don't know if you want to talk a bit about that in relation to talking down to the voters. Yeah, so this you really, might get sued. I'll have to do this very carefully. Um, so on Sunday, I think it was, on Sophie Ridge's show and Sky News, Caroline Flint, obviously the former MP for Don Valley, who um, lost her seat in the midst of that wipeout with someone who was very much took the kind of Brexit vote seriously and wanted to see it implemented. She basically just torpedoed <laughs> Emily Thornberry's campaign before it even got off the ground by making this allegation that another Labour Leave MP had said to her that Emily Thornberry had said to this MP that at least my voters, her voters in Islington, aren't as stupid as yours. Emily Thornberry, we should say, vehemently <laughs> denies that this is the case. She accuses Caroline Flint of, quote, making shit up about her and is um, taking it to the court. But the good thing about Emily Thornberry is um, you don't have to go far for more examples of her talking down to the electorate. Of course, yeah. we all remember the tweet from Rochester and Strood of the white van uh, with the crosses of St George hanging over it, um, as well as, you know, clips of her cackling when... Dawn Butler MP is talking about how I don't care who you are, if you don't hate Brexit, even if you voted for it, there must be something wrong with you and her erupting into laughter. But it was an interesting little moment, I think, because it did demonstrate, because it does feel like Thornberry's campaign is a non-starter now. I mean, we'll see what happens. But it just, the kind of level of entitlement, these kind of middle-class do-goodery Labour type people feel over the Labour Party and the Labour vote. Mm. The fact that they feel it's their party, the fact that they feel it's their right to have these voters, etc., even if they insult them all the time. I think Thornbury really represents that. And it and her um failures so far, or and the fact that it feels like at least her campaign isn't going to get off the ground represents the fact that 
that era is over on some level. Let's let's talk a bit about the Tories now. If the Labour allegations are to be believed, we have now been taken over by a far-right government that is racist, going to sell off the NHS, going to destroy the working class, going to take us out of the EU in a hard Brexit, possibly even a no deal. Doesn't quite stack up, does it? Rather than going full steam ahead for a very strong, clean cut, hard, however you want to call it, Brexit, that actually Johnson's going to, you know, soften up like butter on a hot day when it comes to Brexit. He, all of that is slightly worrying. I think that it would be wrong for any Leave voter to become complacent at this point, even though it has to be said, he's announced this uh, plans for mm. this Brexit bill, mm. which would mean enshrining into law the possibility, both the date for leaving and the possibility of keeping that no deal uh, on the table as an, as something to threaten with. Despite all of that, it's not a given. His heart hasn't been in it from the start. And we only need to remember, you know, a few months ago that the die in a ditch slogan was ridiculed um, and didn't come to fruition. However, I think that one thing is for sure is that the Tories have definitely changed mm. in this election. You could argue sort of beyond recognition. I mean, not just with sort of things that they've done in the last few years, like going half a leather on the Gender Recognition Act, trying in different desperate ways to signal that they're no longer the nasty party, this focus on the NHS and this election. So there are some people within the Labour side who claimed that they have brought, uh, won the argument, but also brought the Tories more towards the left in some respects. Mm. I think that analysis held slightly more weight than this idea that we are suddenly in the dark ages of a incredibly right-wing totalitarian party. Oh, it's hilarious as well. Also, you see a lot of the kind of new intake. You know, there was a write-up about them in the Sunday Times, particularly mm. a lot of the younger MPs. You know, a lot of them are very young, very socially liberal, you know, and it just, it's just really interesting how, because of all of these sort of narratives that were flowing around the... Um, general election and British politics in general before that, you know, all the stop the coup nonsense and this kind of idea that we are in the midst of this kind of sliding slope into the dark old days of um, the 1930s. It's just how all of that just has evaporated because this is, as, as we were saying, a kind of, it is a change party. It's, it's kind of one which is, you know, the Tory party has been relatively socially liberal for a fair amount of time. There's been a, obviously a big faction of that, but the fact it has moved left on economics. But what I think is interesting and what I think is cause for some optimism on the Brexit front or on, or just in general going forward, is the fact that it's very clear that the Tory party recognise how much of a kind of chance people took on them, yeah. you know. And I do think that's going to have more of an impact on them going forward because they know the fact that um, a lot of the a lot of the people who've put them there and the people who've given them this new base and this new dynamism, you know, they didn't give them their support unconditionally. Um, they did it under circumstances in which they were faced with a leader on the Labour side that they really didn't like, and it feels like that's going to have some impact on them. It can't not because mm. if it does, then they're then they're really you know going to um, squander this kind of opportunity that's presented themselves. So on the one hand, we should remain vigilant. We should keep a very close eye on what um, is going forward in relation to the trade negotiations and how that pans out. Is there going to be an extension? Is this, you know, threat of no deal, genuine, all the rest of it? There is some, you know, definitely some cause for some cautious optimism in relation to how things are going to pan out going forward, I think. And I would say one of the most positives about the election is that those voters who for so long were stuck in these Labour safe seats who could be ignored and traduced for decades now matter. 
They mm. now have a voice and now they matter to the Conservative Party, yeah. which is the party that has also hated them for a very, very long weird. time. <laughs> but very positive. <laughs> and and to be to be fair to Boris Johnson, there's someone in his team who is whispering the right things in his ear because his speech after the election results in the morning it was very humble. He said, I'm humbled. And he said, look, I recognise that lots of you will not have been voting for us for the normal reasons, but will be lending your vote because of this issue of Brexit. So I think he's he's fully aware of the, how temporary this moment could be. Mm. Obviously, they want to hang on to these voters forevermore. But the other thing to be cautiously optimistic about is that I think it is now realised that actually these working class voters in the mm. North have been the kingmakers. Mm. Yeah. And not only do they have they just kind of delivered a result that's positive for the Conservatives, but they hold the power now and that the actually, the, you know, it isn't, I don't think the Tories are going to be or they shouldn't be complacent going forward because it's still all to play for. Um, and this could change in a number of years. And it's definitely not, you know, they, they know they haven't won this off the strength of their argument about the NHS or anything else. It's all to do with this one issue, which matters most with those working class voters who now hold the power. You've been listening to The Spike Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, why not give us a rating, a review, or even a donation? We'll be back next week, but for more great Spiked content, just go to spiked-online.com.